0: At the time that we crowdfunded in order to raise money to fight the lawsuit against Disney, when we saw the success of the millions of dollars coming through, I sent an email to my brothers and I said, why couldn't we do this, but for a feature film? I'm like, why couldn't we use crowdfunding to raise money for an individual project? And they're like, oh yeah, why couldn't we? That could, we could totally do that.
1: Welcome to Fortune and Faith, a show about members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and how their faith influenced and oftentimes sustained them as they persevere through obstacles, failures, and challenges on their quest for success. I'm Jason Tang. If you listen to this show regularly, first of all, thank you. Secondly, you may have noticed that there's a few guests who got their start in the door-to-door world and have grown their business in that space. Usually, these jobs are filled up by missionaries who return home from serving a mission for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But today's guest, he got his door-to-door experience much earlier than that. Daniel Harmon, co-founder of VidAngel, the Harmon Brothers Creative Agency, and now the TV series The Tuttle Twins, grew up in Idaho as the fourth of nine siblings. His parents were entrepreneurs that were able to provide basic necessities for the family, but not much extra. So to raise money for anything else, Daniel and his siblings would buy 50 pound cases of potatoes from a family friend's farm and then take them down to Utah and sell them door to door for $20 a case. These experiences in his youth taught him hard work and helped him set goals towards achieving his dream of attending Brigham Young University. However, the greatest education he receives didn't come from his studies, but more from learning how to overcome failure and rejection which started off with a denial of admissions into BYU on his first attempt.
0: Yeah, so my oldest brother went to BYU, my dad went to BYU, my mom went to BYU, and um, another older brother went to BYU. And So that was my dream, grew up watching BYU football, huge BYU fan. I applied, and and I didn't get in. And the, the rejection letter was very painful. Uh, that was my dream, and I didn't even know what to do. I hadn't even considered other colleges or anything like that. I ended up just working and then going on my mission. When I came home from my mission, my brother said that I could take open enrollment BYU classes in order to apply a different way um, since I hadn't been able to get in, in on my ACT score. And I took a Spanish class and I tested out of, it was something like 16 credits of Spanish with all A's. And I took another couple other classes and I did well enough in those that my GPA that I was applying with from my little semester of credit or whatever it was from BYU, it was all summer classes. I think it was like a 3.9 or it was something high, right? Um, So I applied with that and then I did get in. Um, And so that was a a huge victory and a a path I hadn't really seen coming.
1: When you get that rejection letter... And you feel like, man, I've had this history of a family who have gotten in and I did not get in. Does does that make you feel like small or or not worth it or, you know, that you're not good enough within the family? Like how how do you process that at, at such a young age?
0: Yeah, for me, it was a very damaging mentality that I went into of comparison. And comparison is great when you apply it to yourself yourself versus your yesterday self and your week before self and maybe an hour before self, that's all great. Comparison to another person is almost never helpful. And it seems to be mostly a tool of the adversary, um, of just of Satan to get in your head and to hold you back from progress. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was very much like, oh, I didn't live up to a standard and even, even my own dreams on top of that. But it was a hard failure to deal with, and I hadn't yet learned the lesson of the fact that failure is the path to success and isn't getting in the way of your success. It's actually facilitating your path to success.
1: Because the path that you're on, you're like, this is great, you're at BYU – but the, the pattern continues in other ways, right? Where you have yeah. other failures that you've got well, to deal for, with. For me
0: in particular, even at BYU, I go and my older brothers had both sung in the BYU men's chorus. I love the BYU men's chorus. I love choral music. Uh, I love singing. I was in a in a in an ensemble in my private school during high school. And I went and... Auditioned for men's course, and was I didn't even make it past the first round. Like, it was not a great audition. I don't think I had very good pitch. I didn't open up very well. I, there was a lot of different things kind of working against me A, my nerves, <laughs> B, my probably my own th- fear of failure, and then just missing some skill sets, some techniques I hadn't learned yet. So that was a failure. They told me, Well, if you really want to get into men's course, you should go and apply. You should go to the university Chorale, which was an open enrollment music course, and you you learn a lot more choral technique. You learn a lot more sight reading. You learn just a lot of different musical skills that I hadn't mastered at all at that point. Uh, and how to really open up and sing from your diaphragm and not from your throat and those different kinds of things. And I went and joined that, and it was a it was a daily class. Um, I think it was like at four o'clock or five, five o'clock or something like that went every day. And it wasn't a ton of credit. I think it was only like a half credit or, or, or one credit for, for not a ton of school credit and for a major that I wasn't even going into, into music. It was a lot of investment, but I, I learned a lot of vocal technique there. Um, I, I improved a lot in my singing and I went back a year later after performing in devotionals and in different settings and I applied for Ben's chorus. And I got on past the second round and this time it was with, um, actually, I don't even know if I had a first round. I think this time when I applied, because I'd done university corral, I went straight to the director, Rosalind Hall, who, who no longer, um, I think, uh, directs the men's chorus. And I, I think I picked a better song for myself. I did the star spangled banner, which was uh, near and dear to my heart and my vocal cords really opened up and stuff. And she listened to me and she's like, this was really great and was encouraging and tried a few different things with me, tested my range. I felt good about it and um, when I went back and looked at the list I had made it under the second base section and it was just a huge achievement for me and it only I only sang in the men's course for a year but it was just it was cool to realize okay once again I'd overcome this obstacle and had and had learned because of that failure and even in school there it didn't stop I I applied to the animation program. So BYU's animation program is world renowned at this point. It is, I, I think they're always in the top one, two or three. I think wow. there might be one right now where they're constantly getting recruited now um, by Pixar and DreamWorks and these giant animation studios at the time they were starting out a little bit more, but they were getting a pretty good reputation because they had, I think they'd won a couple student Emmys. They only take like 15 to 20 students a year. And they, oh, wow. they had you develop a portfolio. And I went and tried to figure out how to do this. And I took a couple of pre-animation courses. I developed a portfolio to submit. And I got the letter back and I was rejected. But I was told, you were in our top percentile that was rejected. Why don't you try again? So there's a, a handful of students that, that they let apply again. I did it again. I tried to improve on my portfolio. And again, I came up short. And it was, it was pretty devastating at the time. Like I, I had thought animation was my path. I loved, you know, I loved Pixar. Um, I loved Walt Disney animation and I very much followed that. And I felt like that was the path I wanted to go down. In hindsight though, I, I was not one of these people that just draws all the time. And my competition was very much people that just are drawing nonstop, literally like drawing during sacrament meeting at the time I kind of judged that, I'm like, why can't you just focus on the <laughs> talks and, and absorb it? And you're there in church, be in church. But I realized even for some of these personality types where there's a certain kind of ADD where you can really only focus if you're doing something else at the same time. And so for, for a lot of these artists, it is it is their way of listening to the talks. It's like, I'm just going to sit there and draw the speaker and then I'm going to be much more in tune as opposed to my mind wandering all over the place, right? And um, I, not that that necessarily has to be the case for someone that's getting into the animation program, but you need to draw a lot more than I did. And for me, it was like kind of work getting to my like hour a day or my two hours a day of drawing. And again, going against people that had just been drawing their whole lives and, and knew nothing different. And that's all they ever wanted to do. And my interest was more in the art and the 3d side of it. And that was just kind of getting going. And um, there weren't as many like technical kind of, computer type jobs with it as much as it was, if you, if you can't draw, you can't get in. So I ended up not getting in, but then I found another major that they teach at BYU, which is advertising and specifically they have a creative track. And my mom, I don't know how she came across it, but she had a conversation with someone that learned that BYU has an advertising school. And I went over to the professor, his, his name, um, the the start of the program at BYU is Doug McKinley. And I told him that I was really interested in that. I've always loved advertising. Like when my mom, when we would watch Monday Night Football back in the day, she would always turn off the TV during the commercial breaks and make us clean. And I was—I just hated it. <laughs> I hated it so bad because I—you want to watch the commercials? Boy, I wanted to watch the commercials. I loved the commercials, especially of the '90s era. Some of those commercials were so great. Like, um, I mean. You know, I, I'm a Latter-day Saint, and I don't drink, but the Bud Light commercials were really right. good. <laughs> they were really funny. And, you know, I could remember things like the tangy zip of Miracle Whip. I, there was one time when my my siblings, one of my my older brother, he grabbed me and said, Daniel, come here. He blindfolded me and took me in the kitchen, didn't tell me what was going on. And then across the way was my cousin, and he had an empty jar and a spoon in it an empty mason jar and a spoon. And he just went clank, clank back and forth with it. He's like, what's that? And I said, that's the miracle whip ad. <laughs> Cause they had this thing on, on their ad campaign back then it was like, nothing's like the, ta- like the, 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 the tangy. I, I can't even remember it now, but <laughs> nothing's like the, t- the tangy taste The clank, clank of miracle whip is what it was. And they were, and my brother's like, I told you he'd get it. And they're like, how is that possible? Cause I had no context <laughs> of what they were doing or anything, but they were just like, they knew I memorized ads and quotes for movies and all these kinds of things. So anyway, I um I went and I go uh, apply to the creative advertising track at BYU. Also, only accepts about uh, twenty students a year. I can't, might have been even less than that. I don't know what it was. Um, put together a portfolio, go through those classes, and by this point I'm two years into college, at least maybe three. I can't, I can't remember what well it was. I'm I'm I'm, I'm going to be there, you know, five years even if I get into this. But I did end up getting in. It was a huge victory and uh, laid the foundation for uh, most of what my career has been to this day.
1: Right. So you, now you graduate with the yep. advertising degree. You did yep. some other things, but really what kind of got your name and, and your brother's names on the map was was you, you guys started kind of an, an advertisement agency, if you will. But I don't think you planned on make, making it that way to start.
0: No, not at all. I mean, I... I started out in the ad industry, graduating from BYU. I worked at a couple of big agencies in Chicago. DDB Chicago worked on campaigns for things like the Chicago International Film Festival, for McDonald's, for Dell Computer, for um, some big brands like that. But then I went and worked at um, a big agency, design agency there called BSA Partners as a copywriter. And I worked on GE Healthcare and and, uh, Harley Davidson and some some big brands like that and learned a lot about design work and, and and those kinds of things. And I, in 2008, when the financial crash happened, the housing market um, popped, I was one of the casualties of it. So I had noticed for about two months that my workload had slowed down considerably. And for one month where I had next to nothing. And so when they pulled me in and said, we're downsizing you, like it wasn't a shock at all. And I was also at a place where I was unhappy with the job because of what it required. I would get up in the morning. I lived in Naperville. Anybody, anybody that's familiar with Chicago, it was, it was an hour and a half commute mm. between getting on the Metro train and going down to downtown Chicago and then getting on the L train and circling around down to close to soldier Field where the bears play and that is where my agency was. And so on a good day, I got on the, I got, I left the, I left for work at 7am and I got home at 7pm. So 12 hours. And then I had young kids at the time. And so they would be in bed when I left and they would be in bed when I got home. And so it was, it was, a, it was a really kind of a tough time. And the the commute was kind of killing me. Got a lot of great reading done, <laughs> but, but I was not, I wasn't super happy with that. And so in some ways, as devastating as it was to lose my job, it was a little bit of a relief and a little bit of a tender mercy from, from the Lord to kind of open up a new path. And so my wife and I, we moved out of our apartment and moved up to Wisconsin in the basement of her parents while I was looking for a job. And no one was hiring. Like no one in the ad industry was hiring at all. And I had to take a sales job. and. That was at a, at an interstate all battery center in Appleton, Wisconsin, had a really great boss, really learned a lot about the people I was working with. And I was just moonlighting. I was in the evenings. I would go home and I would work on design projects and creative projects where I was writing, or I was um, doing design work again with my advertising background, working on different projects with my brothers and things like that before it got to a certain point, and then they eventually made me an offer to come out and work for this startup company called Aura Brush. It's a tongue cleaner for bad breath. And um, it, it was made famous by YouTube and a bunch of the work that we did on there. And um, I, my wife and I ended up accepting the offer and moving out to Utah to be an art director um, at Aura Brush. So out of that failure of the, the 2008 crash and transitioning over to sales, which wasn't my first passion, I was able to actually transition and find a way back into marketing and advertising, which was much more much more where my heart was.
1: And, and your family's there in Utah as well, right? Because you talked yeah. about you worked with your brothers a little bit there. They're in Utah as well, so now this brings you all back together, where yeah, you know, some some harm and magic starts to, to happen.
0: Yeah. So with Aura Brush, we had incredible success on YouTube to the point that we were able to get the Aura Brush, the tongue cleaner, into stores and CVS, Walgreens, Walmart, international retailers like Boots and, and all those kinds of things. And got noticed by a lot of people in the industry. And then a company reached out to my brother called Poopery and made an offer for us to leave Aura Brush and go do a campaign with them. And uh, my brother's they took it on and they made me an offer to come along with them. And I uh, I jumped at it and we went and did the poopery campaign. Um, I think it's called Girls Don't Poop. It's, yep. it's still <laughs> labeled on, on YouTube. Millions and millions of views. It, it blew up all over the place, was featured all over in media. And at the time, we hadn't really thought we of uh, much of anything other than doing that campaign. But when people in the news would cite the campaign, they'd say creative agency Um, Harbor brothers. And, um, I mean, Harbor brothers was just an LLC to put the money for the campaign into so we could go and execute on it and make it happen. We weren't thinking that we were starting an ad agency at the time. And then, um, my, um, one of our cousins, Benton Crane, um, he'd been brought out to work out on the campaign and he kind of had this idea all along that we needed to become an ad services company. And, we started had so many people reaching out, but at the time we uh, we also founded um, VidAngel because the uh, the basic idea was I love I love movies I love watching TV and I don't like watching it with all the garbage in it. There's a lot of stuff I just choose not to watch because I don't want to watch it because of the language, the violence, the sex, whatever it is. Right. And I have young kids that I want to show cool stories to, and how much of it can I show to them? And so anyway, we made uh, a company called VidAngel that will, allows you to filter those kinds of things out to either mute or to skip those parts in inside of your, your movies and TV shows. And we were also working on this ad services business, um, after the poopery success. And we went out and we did this, um, we did this campaign for, um, the church, um, specifically for the radiant foundation, which was a collaboration with the Piano Guys. For those of you that are familiar with them on YouTube, um, it was a collaboration with Peter Hollins and David Archuleta, and we did this nativity video, which was hugely successful, got millions and millions of views, and it promoted the share the the share the gift campaign that the church was doing at the time. And we did it for no profit. We had this mentality of like, oh, if we do something really good for the Lord's Kingdom. <laughs> Everything going. It's going to be fine. Right? It's just the blessings be great. will After come this, down. Blessings will come down. And so we did this campaign, took no profit on it. And then we went through a massive dry spell with, with Harmer Brothers and getting new clients and trying to figure that out. So poopery blown up. The success had opened the doors for us to do this campaign with the piano guys. And then we just had this terrible drought where. I was once again going back to moonlighting and doing little freelance stuff on the side to to survive. I was draining my bank account, my savings account that we had set aside. I mean for this type of a purpose to be granted, but it was whittling away each month. and then Benton, he was one of the, the five first Uber drivers in Provo because <laughs> he was trying to find something to get by, just gotta make and some he money. Was, he was doing some landscaping. and then Jeffrey, my my brother Jeffrey, and my brother Neil, who are also co-founders of Harmer Brothers. They're all co-founders of VidAngel as well. And we were starting those two businesses at once, Harmer Brothers and VidAngel, essentially. Because the thought was one of these businesses has to to fail. And they were both really struggling at that point. But then right when VidAngel started kind of picking up steam and started getting um, a bigger user base and started attracting investment from venture capitalists, was the same time that we ended up finally landing the deal with Squatty Potty. So Squatty Potty became really put Harvard brothers on the map way more than an even poopery did. We had that pooping unicorn with rainbow ice cream. (laughs) It went to the, went to the millions and millions and millions of views um, all over Facebook, all over YouTube, just sold through their inventory like crazy. Um, They were running factories 24 seven to keep up. And um, then we just had you know clients coming from all over, and that's kind of when we nailed our business model at the time for Harmon Brothers, and and like I said, VidAngel took off at the same time. So Jeffrey and Neil went and focused on on VidAngel, and Benton and I we focused on Harmon Brothers, and yeah, it was out of like ser- seriously out of the time of draining our savings accounts, driving Uber, doing doing odd jobs to get by the Harmon Brothers eventually became this um, this massive success and uh, became a little bit of a darling within the, the, the advertising industry.
1: Well, listen, I've, I've got a squatty potty in my, in my bathroom and and yeah. Poopery, so it's, it's working, it's working. <laughs> we've, sold,
0: we've, we've sold a few people, yeah. I mean, to this day, I have a squatty potty, we use Poopery, I've got an aura brush that I use. I sleep on a purple mattress. I mean, just go on down the list. I mean, these are all products we very much believed in and felt like we could tap into the authenticity and truth of what the product really was and that the problem is solved for people. And that's a lot of the success was in being able to do that.
1: When we talk about ads, it's similar to comedy where how could you shock the audience? How can you make it memorable? And a lot of times you know, we talked about it earlier. You said a commercial that resonates with you is is the Budweiser commercial. So I'm sure things like alcoholic beverages or, or you know, maybe their are sexual things that have probably approached you to do their ads where maybe it made business sense. Was it easy to turn those down
0: or did you turn them down or? With Harmer Brothers, we had a, um, very much a brand rooted in comedy, right? Comedy is all about surprise. It doesn't have to be shock. Shock can be an element of it, Um, but um, surprise for sure in order for things to be funny. And so a lot of brands, since we've taken on really taboo subjects like poopery, so, you know, bathroom smell and, and squatty potty, you know, your colon health and, We'd we'd done uh, OraBrush, which was a tongue cleaner for bad breath. We'd done all these things. They started assuming, oh, these guys will do the toughest subjects out there. So we started getting approached by all sorts of weird things, and some of which were like, oh, that makes sense for us, and others was like, no, we don't need to do this at all. But um, once the brand had been established and that it wasn't just about taking on taboo subjects, but it just really great marketing, then we started getting approached by you know major alcoholic uh, beverage companies and and. And some other things that were like very sexualized and we had to start making choices about like, Oh, what kind of clients are we going to take on? And, and, you know, for people within the company whose commission relies on closing deals, there's a little bit of an incentive like, Oh man, we gotta, we gotta take these clients on. I mean, it's just marketing. And I guess that's a way we could have thought about it, but ultimately we just decided we one of our core values was that we would only market things that we believed in ourselves. That was something that we would use or something that we knew someone who we knew would use or something that would make the world a better place ultimately. And so we decided alcohol was off at the table, that we weren't going to go down the sexualized route with any of these brands. And that closed a lot of doors to us. I mean, there's, you know, Major players, like the biggest players in the alcohol industry reached out to us and we turned down, you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and probably north of a million dollars of, of opportunities that could have come our way had we been willing to go down that road. And we just, we ultimately would explain it to them, like, you know what, we sell best when we believe in the product. If it's not something we use. We're not not—you're going to be your best salesman anyway. We would kind of let let them down easily like that but then also just we want it to be things that we feel like would improve the world overall, improve people's lives. And that is not very clear cut And in, in those areas. In fact, it's very clear cut in the opposite direction. And so, um, yeah, it just, it felt a lot better to kind of just stick by, stick by our values and say, Hey, we're just getting, we're not going to cross certain lines. Um, marketing is power and influencing culture is power and let's, it's great power comes great responsibility, right? And so we we just decided we'd take the responsibility of our own hands to just not go, not enter into some of those partnerships. People always say when
1: one door closes, another one opens. Now that's a heavy door to close. But but did did you see other doors open because you stuck to your morals because you did what you believed?
0: Yes, I think so. And I don't think we could ever track it necessarily monetarily, but people could see that we had essentially a code of ethics that we, that we stuck by. And I think that attracted different kinds of entrepreneurs and business partners to us. Um, and that was very advantageous. Um, I don't know that we actually ended up better off financially for turning those things down, but at the end of the day, it doesn't matter, right? Those, those kind of outcomes are more up, to the Lord than they are to to us, and um, it's a little bit more about you know what's what's the price on your soul, right? right. What's, the, what's the price on your conscience? And um, we just felt like we wanted to wanted to stay true to to ourselves in that way.
1: And I think that's a, so such an important um, way to look at things because the world measures everything by money, yeah. But that's not always how true success is measured. And then as you see, you know both businesses now have taken off and when it comes to vid angel there's a part of the story i want to touch on because they they get into some legal trouble with hey now you're you're toying with people's artistic creations and and you're changing you know what they wanted to do with it And, and and i believe disney comes in yeah and is looking to you know stop it pretty much i think
0: Exactly the whole the VidAngel was built on from our legal counsel we built it on the basis of the Family Movie Act which allowed for allowed for you to filter your content essentially to be able to skip past things that you found objectionable or mute them and so it was all based on that and um, essentially a sophisticated remote. People already do this, right? It's just like, oh, gosh, here, here they're starting to kiss and take off their clothes. Let's go ahead and hit fast forward. Or, or like, you know, there's these moments where the parents are watching a movie and they know here comes an F-bomb or something. They mute it or, or whatever language it is and depending on the age for the kids. And so that's all the technology was. But um, Disney ended up coming after Bit Angel and didn't have really any interest at all in um, them being able to filter their content. And it wasn't just Disney, it was it was uh, Pixar, and it was Warner Brothers, and Lucasfilm, and there was a bunch of others. And I think the main reason behind it, and Disney's primary interest was likely, if I was to theorize, was they were kind of the family brand. And if you could go and filter any content you watched, then it leveled the playing field a lot out there with what was available. And so they, I think they want to be the, the authority on stuff, and they don't like the... People, the thought of people picking and choosing what's in their art. Art art, artists don't like it from the standpoint of like they're kind of purists. And if I'm if I'm to go put on my tinfoil hat for a second, I think they also there's certain messages that they want in there. There's certain there's certain power and influence that they want media to have on the culture. And if you're filtering some of that out, then does it have that same kind of impact that they're looking for? You know, that's that's a little bit of I, I think where there are some who have more of that kind of an interest. I don't think it's most, but I think there are some that that maybe is a little bit what drives them. But at the end of the day, I, uh, the, the in, Disney sued vid It ended up being a legal battle that was drawn out over years and years. We went, we went, did crowdfunding for vid angel and raised somewhere in the neighborhood of $12 million in order to go fight, fight the cam, campaign to the Supreme court was the objective. And we go through and found out that Disney does not play nice um, in 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 court. They will. It's not as much about what the law is. It's much more about who's going to win this thing, right? It's much more about the legal positioning and all that kind of stuff. Um, and what I mean by that is like games and things.
1: Well, and and they and, probably and, have a lot more backing. Even with your crowdfunding, they probably so have a lot, a lot more backing yeah.
0: in terms of dollars. Yeah, they're fighting on their side, to be fair, for what they believe is right as well, right? And so it goes through the court system and ends up being a ruling that comes down. It does not go in Ben Angel's favor. It doesn't ever get to the Supreme Court. It goes. It's a, It's the biggest copyright ruling of all time. It's over $60 million that lands on the head of, of VidAngel. And this whole time, I'm just thinking to myself, boy, am I glad I'm in Armor Brothers and not <laughs> over I'm Angel. glad I'm not my brothers oh, this my time. Brother's there. I'm not my brothers. Yeah, it was a tremendously stressful time for them. Took years off of their life, for sure, in in, in going through all that and fighting that battle. And in, in the midst of that battle with Disney, they decided um, that they needed to be able to create content of their own and not just rely on the content from the studios. And so that's when um, that's when Dry Bar comedy was launched, which a lot of you might be familiar with it gets over a billion views um, a year now, just comedy specials and clips all over the internet and all over Sirius XM and different things where you can watch these comedians that kind of clean up their app their act for an audience that they know is can can filter their content. And what happened with Drybar is that rather than telling comedians what they could, could and couldn't do in their act. If they wanted to go blue, that's what the term in comedy is. If you want to go blue, meaning you go for, you know, more crass, more profanity, more sexual, all that kind of stuff. We would, we wouldn't tell them how they could, uh, what things they could perform in their act, but instead we'd incentivize them. So if people filtered more of your content, if they applied more filters to get rid of swearing and sexual references and all those kinds of things, then they got paid less. And then all of a sudden they would be looking to cater to the audience. So they'd come in like, Oh, I want to perform a dry bar. This is a really great exposure. Is this joke going to be okay? And they would like look to clear it with us first. Right. And so, whereas the stand-up world is much more in the neighborhood of how far can you push things? How much more can you shock? So, so much of comedy is based on surprise. And so a lot of that surprise is based on in shock, specifically shock with content that is edgy or, offensive to many people or whatever it is. And instead they had to hone in on their jokes that were more universally acceptable, especially to family audiences and where they were going to get paid more. And so they naturally just cleaned up their acts because that was the dry bar brand. And uh, it was an incredible thing to see and, and, and had a ton of success. And then eventually um, my brothers come across um, a very talented director, get connected with a very talented director in uh, Dallas Jenkins and they hear his concept for what we now know as the chosen. Um, and but he had a he had a little film, you know, called the Shepherd, uh, a short film that could be expanded out into a TV series, which was um, the the nativity story, but for, from the eyes of the shepherd, right, from one of the shepherds who um, went and saw him. And he had this concept for what if we tell the stories of Jesus, but again, more through the eyes of the people that surrounded him and, and for more from a relatable human kind of connection standpoint and, and and do it in ways that are in ways where we can relate with it as a moderate audience, use language and things like that, that are, that are very relatable. Anyway, they, at the time that we crowdfunded in order to raise money to fight the lawsuit against Disney, when we saw the success of the millions of dollars coming through, I sent an email to my brothers and I said, why couldn't we do this, but for a feature film? <laughs> I'm like, why couldn't we use crowdfunding to raise money for an individual project? And they're like, oh yeah, why couldn't we? That could we could totally do that.
1: And but but how are, are got, you doing that though? Because eleven million dollars is a lot of money. Are, are you just yes. like sending like, hey, donate twenty bucks? Click on this link to donate what you no. want. Like, How are you going about actually raising this money?
0: So during the Obama administration, a law was passed that allows you to file with the SEC, the Secure- Security Exchange Commission, um, what's called a Reg A offering, which allows you to raise up to, I forget, it's something like $50 million or it might be $70 million, whatever it is. There's some sort of a ceiling on it, but you can do it from average investors from the crowd. And you don't have to go out to institutional investors. Um, the investment world is kind of broken up so that the people with <laughs> it, it, in all reality, the people with more money keep more money, right? Um, you you can't just have an average person go in and plop down money in any old investment. You have to you have to meet certain qualifications in order to invest. And the idea behind it is a regulation to eliminate risk for people. But what it also does is it eliminates upside because because investments are all about risk, right? At the end of the day, if you're going to invest money, I mean, it is like the the parable of the talents. <laughs> if you if you're going right. to hide it away, you can't ever multiply it, right? And so it kind of kept the average Joe away from these kind of investments. But this new law that was passed did allow for this, and that's what that's how VidAngel raised that twelve million dollars, might have been thirteen, I can't remember, to to fight the lawsuit and just put out to our hardcore audience, our email list and and ads and everything like that, that we were raising money to fight this lawsuit. And it was tremendously successful. So people were chipping in at a hundred dollars here, a thousand dollars there, some people, 10,000, some people, you know, over a hundred thousand dollars. It was just coming in from all over the place, but it allowed the everyday person to be able to invest. So when we saw that sort of momentum that could happen and rallying behind a cost, it's like, I can't, that's nice. Like, why can't we just do this for a film that people would really believe in? Right. And they're like, yeah, that's a really great idea. So, when it came time to get money to produce what we now know as The Chosen, uh, my brothers went to Dallas, uh, Jenkins, and they said, hey, yeah, we want to take on your film. We want to be your distributor. We're going to do it for crowdfunding. He was like, oh, crap. <laughs> he was like, <laughs> he's like, okay. He's like, well, we might raise 500 bucks. <laughs> it was just, What's his thought? It's like, no one, because he'd seen what happens on Kickstarters, right? Sure. And on, on Kickstarter, you don't actually own a piece of the company. You just are paying into something you believe in. You might get perks out of it, T shirts, whatever, you know, the DVD when it comes out, whatever that is. And he'd seen the success of those and they were maybe raising a few thousand dollars at best. And he's like, oh my gosh, this is going to go over like a lead balloon. And then when we went out the door with the campaign, and really started marketing it. Um, Vin Angel and VidAngel and Harbour Brothers partnered up on it to, to work on that. We were able to raise over $10 million for that first season through really effective ads through actually, you know, buying ads on that, that full length shepherd um, movie. I mean, it was, it was a, a short film. It was like 20 plus minutes long and people would watch it in its entirety as an ad on Facebook. And then they would go and they would invest in the chosen as a company and that's where they raised the money from. And it was just amazing. I mean, Dallas tells the story over and over again of God doing impossible math and those types of things that happened with it. But yeah, it was amazing. From there, VidAngel and the original content started to take off. Meanwhile, we're over here doing, you know, Harvard Brothers and, and servicing clients and taking care of people like Purple and, you know, and and, and Squatty Potty and, and um, Chatbooks and and Lumi deodorant and all these um, and there comes a point where they felt like after the ruling came down against VidAngel, bit bit Angel at that point was actually making quite a bit of money because of the chosen. Right. And um, the filtering business and all the other things, they decided to break those off into two separate companies. So bit Angel went and pursued the filtering for things like Netflix, Amazon, um, HBO, that kind of stuff. Now even Apple TV, I believe. And then Angel, the new company, um, took Drybar and The Chosen, and now the property that I'm working on, Tuttle Twins.
1: And The Tuttle Twins is an animated show you created based off a book series. So how does this come about? Because as a creator, you essentially have a blank canvas to go off of. Why did you decide to focus in on this book series, which is a more entertaining way to teach children and even adults the principles of, of freedom and economics?
0: I have a friend named Connor Boyack. He has authored, I think, over 40 books to this point, maybe 50. He wrote a series called The Tuttle Twins. It ended up selling really well because it taught principles that are basically being lost from schools and from culture, kind of constitutional, conservative principles of freedom and economics. Things like rights to life, liberty and property, entrepreneurship, the golden rule, free markets, inflation. Um, all these types of, uh, of subjects that weren't really being taught to kids and aren't being taught in culture and schools at large. And so when the book series started to have enough success that he was selling the tens of thousands of copies, he put out there on his socials that he wanted to turn it into a TV series. I've been following the book series from the get go. I bought his first book, read it with my kids, loved it, really felt like it was a resource that I would have loved to have had as a kid. Bought every one of his books that came out afterwards, read them. It was really great educational material we used in our own home. And then when I saw that he wanted to turn it into a TV series, then um, uh, Benton, my my partner and I, Harmer Brothers, we reached out to him and said, no, we want to turn it into a TV series for you. Like, we know how to do content creation. Let's let's make this happen. And, and my brother Jeffrey was pushing for this for a while, and I couldn't kind of wrap my head around it at, at first. But then... I started to think of what we do at Harmon brothers. So so much of what we have done so well is use comedy and entertainment and really engaging characters and storytelling to tell complex stories of products that aren't known. Right. It's, it's, it's really educational and entertaining at the same time. And I was like, that's kind of what this book series needs. Right. It's it's very educational, but I think it needs to be something so entertaining that kids want to choose it over their options of other entertainment. Like, Kind of a, a, a magic school bus kind of a, a vibe, you know? Um, and so we reach out to Connor. We've been longtime friends, mutually admired each other's work, and eventually reach an agreement to make Tuttle Twins, to take the book series and the lessons in it, and use it as the basis for a TV series. And so we, we are gonna do it on the Angel platform. We go through the crowdfunding and we raise we raise some initial money. Um, I, my brother Jeffrey was the first investor in and Connor was the second. and, and we ha- uh, were able to pull together enough money between um, a bunch of us to sort of make the pilot episode, get some, bring together some heart, uh, some talent for character design and different things like that, and make sort of a proof of concept and we make this um, animatic. So it's a, the first, the pilot episode is, is 20 or 22 minutes long. I can't remember. And um, we do an animatic. So it's just a collection of storyboards and temporary voices and stuff to be able to communicate the idea. And then we put that up and go to raise, raise uh, do crowdfunding on it. And we were able to raise $3.7 million from the crowd uh, across two rounds, which was a world record at the time uh, for um, a kid's TV show. And over 8,700 investors, probably a quarter of them, were just like, I don't even care if I make my money back. This just needs to exist because the world needs it kind of a thing.
1: And just and, to clarify, this is not like a, an LDS or, or Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints type production. This is not even no, a religious um, type production.
0: No, it's not. I mean, we do because, because there's a grandma with a time-traveling wheelchair who takes her her young twin, twin grandkids back in time to learn from certain figures in history. A lot of those figures, we have them be open about their religious beliefs sure. and stuff. Like they go visit Frederick Bastiat to learn about, um, you know, principles of economics and a right to life, liberty, and property. And he talks about how we all have God given rights. And, you know, we visit right. Harriet, Harriet Tubman, and um and we visit um Brosa Parks and they both had beliefs, you know, very heavy beliefs in God. We acknowledge that. We don't try to, you know, whitewash it, but no, this is not a religious program. Um, it is not a Latter-day Saint program, but it is very much in line with the values of the exactly. religious community. And it just goes over sound economic principles, teaches about how inflation comes about, and we just had a lot of success in being able to raise from the crowd. And then we um, had some other additional private investors that came in and we were able to fund the first season. It's 12 episodes long. The last season, the last episode or finale released last year, I think in November, it's all available for free on the angel app along with the chosen um, and a lot of other great content they have on there. And uh, we just started releasing season two um, now uh, just this week, actually as of this recording. And it's really cool because it's really cool seeing parents rally behind this. It's great because it's starting conversations around the dinner table. And we have parents over and over and over again. We hear parents saying, I'm understanding stuff that I I never understood before. Like, I believe in these things, but I never knew how to articulate it or break it down into a way of critical thinking. And now my kids are understanding this and we're talking about it and we're diving into it more. And that it's really become a co experience for um, for parents and kids because we've got a bunch of comedy. It's kind of we're kind of following a little bit of the Pixar model where we've got a bunch of one-liner kind of jokes that go right over the heads of kids, but then work really well for the parents. And then a bunch of you know slapstick humor and stuff. That's kind of like Phineas and universal. Ferb a little bit too. Yeah, there's I mean a lot of inspiration drawn from the Magic School Bus, from Phineas and Ferb, from you know the, the Simpsons. And these, uh, But uh, more family-friendly than the, than the Simpsons. <laughs> and yeah, so we've just kind of got this spot. Again, the vision from the beginning has been to create content that the kids will choose to watch over their options on YouTube, Netflix, wherever they're getting their entertainment. And that they'll be getting a really great lesson about disagreeing with someone doesn't make them your enemy. Or the fact that persuasion is greater than force. Or that when you print tons and tons of money, you inflate the currency, and all of a sudden prices on everything rise. So anyway, what we're living that's, in right now. That's, that's what we're living in right now.
1: But yeah. so you, you release season two, and, and that's awesome. That's exciting. Is the is the plan to continue this like The Simpsons, where it's been going thirty seasons plus? I mean,
0: <laughs> yeah, we just want to go one more one more season length than The Simpsons and set the new record. No. Um, <laughs> No, I mean, the, the idea very much is this this show has the legs and is dealing with a subject matter that is always going to be refreshing itself, that it can last for, you know, season after season after season, but it can outlast my involvement in it. That would be the goal is to set it up to do that. And, you know, it's one step at a time to see, you know, how much momentum we can get. Our goal is to reach 100 million kids with the ideas of freedom. So that needs to go way beyond the United States. We find a lot of people throughout the world that are very much yearning for relief and freedom from oppression and from uh, either very communist type governments or a uh, fascist or socialist or whatever it is where they're are authoritarian forces at, at hand in, in their lives. And in um, the policy making in their governments, they, they're very hungry for this message. And so we're getting it translated and dubbed into Spanish and Portuguese and and other languages to come, and but the idea is to reach 100 million kids with these, with with all this. It's not about an election cycle or anything like that. It's about what what can we do to essentially give a foundation of these principles in the hearts and minds of kids, so that in 10 and 20 years from now, they're going out and really affecting change in their own communities.
1: Yeah, and you, you and your brothers have have done some pretty incredible things here with the business businesses that you've, you've created and have helped, you know, make successful. When we look back to the the first where we started this interview, we talked about that pattern of, 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 you know, you had failure, you worked through it, and then you were able to have a breakthrough in success. With hindsight, what have you been able to learn that has helped you to where you are now from those experiences?
0: Every experience that God allows us to pass through can be turned to our good and is intended for our good, that he allows all those things to be intended for our good. And whether or not that ends up being the case is is more dependent on how much are we turning to him in the process? How much are we continuing to praise him in good times and in bad? I mean, so much of the training and the culture in the church is that blessing equals I'm going to like it. (laughs) And it's just,
1: it's just not not the
0: case. No, there's trials are blessings. They are. And granted, I'm not talking about like we can go out and make a whole bunch of mistakes and suffer the consequences from it and be like, well, those are all blessings. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying in the process of learning and making mistakes that when those down times come, they are there for learning that's, that is the only time we learn when we succeed. We don't really learn that much. You know, we learn much more when we fail, so we go on to try something else. And a failure is the path. So the the, the atonement and the power of it is not just for the forgiveness of sins, obviously. It is, it is literally there for the human experience of learning. That's what it's there for. Even above and beyond the salvation of our sins, it's so that we can move forward and make mistakes and trip up and do all sorts of terrible things in our lives above and beyond like even, you know, just getting into temptations and that kind of things, but that we can mess up in business, that we can mess up in our careers. And that's all overcomable because of the power of the atonement. That's, that's really what it means to me is that that's where grace really comes in, is in taking care of all of that human experience. And that if we the more we can embrace the fact that that's all covered for us, the faster we can be on the path to learning and progression and becoming more and more like our savior.
1: Right. And, and trials happen in all facets of our life, uh, whether it's business, school, work, whatever it may be, and including family. I know you recently had, you know, a a pretty tough trial as a family when, um, you know, you live one of a parent's worst nightmare when you lost one of your your children. That you had a stillborn, I believe.
0: In March of twenty twenty, a month that will go down in infamy, right? Uh, right, for all of us as far as COVID is concerned. So, COVID had hit and had started to shut everything down. So, the, the Rudy Gobert game had happened. Um, touches with, all the microphones with the Utah Jazz and all the and, and all the. Um, And everything had started to shut down and all that stuff had happened. And then my wife was 38 months pregnant with our seventh. And the midwife came over for to check on the heartbeat because my wife was starting to wonder about things. Just three days earlier, she'd been over and everything was looking great. And she was listening for a heartbeat and couldn't get one. And essentially, like you said, you start to process what is your worst nightmare as a parent of losing a child. Because you think until it happens to you, it can never happen to you. Um, you think that's only something that happens to other people. And you even admittedly, when you hear of that happening to other people, you almost thank the Lord and are grateful that that wasn't you. <laughs> and we went through all of those stages of grief and all those things. And yeah, we had, we had a stillborn at, 30, at 38 weeks and we decided to give her the name of grace and we learned we, and are learning through this process of going through this what grace actually means in our lives um, both in the sense of our daughter and our connection to her and then the grace of God and of Jesus Christ and those first two weeks were amazing in the sense that you first go through all the the heartache and the, the initial fears and the whys and This can't really be happening to me. And then almost immediately in comes the peace that passes all understanding. The comfort comes in and gives reassurance that everything's going to be okay and that your family's going to learn from it and that you're going to be better off. And and then those two weeks are gone, at least in our experience. And then at some point, that constant peace that you have leaves. And it kind of helps you through that first sort of traumatic stage of it, and then you have to get get down to the day-to-day living with it and really tap into and turn to God and um, even more than you ever have in your life. In that process, I feel like I've drawn closer to my Savior than I ever have before. And I have um, had to go through, uh, admittedly, more struggles, like grief, grief brings up, it's, it's like a, it's like a dredger that, that they scrape along the bottom of a river or an ocean or something like that. It, it brings up all sorts of emotions and things like that. You didn't even know we're there. And it's, it's done that for our marriage. It's done that in our family. And so it wasn't just dealing with the passing of our daughter. It was, it like turned our whole family upside down for a time. And it's been that way for um, a couple of years where we have just been going through some really hard stuff and at and, and every opportunity, I have to say to myself, am I going to turn against God for this? And am I, am I going to ask, am I going to say, no, this isn't, this isn't the right thing for me? This, this thing that I'm going through, no, that other stuff is fine, but this isn't the right one. Or am I going to say, am I, is there something I can learn from this? Is there something in myself I can change? Is there a way that I can rely more on God and have more faith in Him? And not be so controlling of the outcomes and understand my stewardship as a child of God and as a priesthood holder and as a husband and father is more of the turning to him and leaving leaving things to his will and his outcomes more than it is me controlling things. And that process has been very eye-opening. I've had to learn more about charity in this time period. And what that really means, I, I've been been—I've always been an obedient person. I think that's probably can come across in some of the things that I've talked about here. I've always been a person that's been really good about following the rules. But then if we don't have charity, we don't have anything, right? And so I've had to learn what it is to obey out of the love of my heart and, and to really keep the two greatest commandments of loving God and loving our neighbors, ourselves, where it's flowing from the heart and not so much because I'm trying to check boxes. And I feel like those are experiences that I never I never probably would have had the same way had I not gone through what we've gone through with 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 losing a child. And I mean, if you were to ask me to this day if I could turn it around, I'd still probably say I would take it. But I don't know if it would be good for me. I there's God allows us to pass through everything. He allows us trials. He packages up our blessings in the form of some stuff that's just really, really hard. Following Christ is the easiest path, and that rarely means it's going to be easy, if that makes any sense. It's one of the great ironies. It is so much easier to follow Jesus and to keep his commandments than it is to go after the things of the world, but that doesn't ever mean it's going to be easy. (laughs) You know, it just... There's going to be so much hardship in it but that it, it I, I think it's nearly Maxwell that would said something like yeah let me be like you let me let me go into your presence let me let me have all these attributes that you have but I don't want to go through any of these things <laughs> the acting the teaching and the forming and the chiseling and the and the making and the becoming of it you know I don't want to go through any of that just just give it to me <laughs> and I think that's sometimes what our expectation is with, I don't know if there's culture, I don't know what it is, or with, that's just the way we think of in our heads. If I do the good things, I'm going to get the good blessings. Yeah, that's all true. Do you know what those good blessings look like? Because <laughs> they, don't, they don't always look as good as you think they will, at least your definition of good, right? God's God's ways are not our ways.
1: I'm super impressed with with the perspective you have, and I know it's been, like you said, three years now, so you've had time to process grief and you're still going through that. It's hard for me to imagine having never gone through something like this, or even I have a friend who lost their husband in a very tragic car accident. And to say that I'm going to learn something from this, I'm going to be better because of this, in my mind, I'm like, well, wouldn't it be better if she just had him still? Wouldn't it be better if you just had your daughter still? Mm-hmm. But you're able to still see that this this could actually be something that is blessing you? I mean, where Where does that come from is that is that us telling ourselves a story to make us feel better or do we actually feel it and believe that
0: yeah you asked the right question it really boils down to where is our faith where do we really have faith in god and i think for another friend of mine who had a wife who passed away from brain cancer passed away at 34 years old i think four kids again, the same kind of thing, a co-worker of mine back in the brush days. And uh, I went to her funeral and her father spoke at the time and he said something that stuck with me ever since where he said, and I'm going to paraphrase him, he said, our faith is in Jesus Christ and it is not dependent on outcomes. And I, I want to put a caveat on that. Obviously, we are to follow the fruits, right? God tells us about in our actions, look at the fruits. But at the end of the day, we have to have faith in eternal outcomes, right? It's not about temporal outcomes. It's not necessarily about outcomes in this life. And if we really have that faith, then it is very much as President Nelson teaches, then happiness and joy come from the focus of our lives and not the circumstances of our lives. And it just takes tremendous faith. It's like faith, your faith. How do we think faith stretches? (laughs) If we don't have enough faith right now, how is it ever supposed to stretch and grow? You know, things, things stretch when they're pulled on, when they're put under pressure, when they're, when they're That's, that's how our muscles work. That's how everything in life's work. It has to go through a pain, painful process of breaking down before it becomes a new thing. And that's the way we are gifted this faith is through these experiences. And we, you know, there's the old joke of don't ever pray for patience. The, right. Lord, <laughs> you know, the, the Lord will give you all sorts of experiences to teach you patience. And, that's it by patriarchal um, blessing. So oh, great. Yeah. Thank you. I, that. I I don't, I've always considered myself a patient person. And so it's not one that I've even felt like I need to pray for. But for me, it wasn't patience. It's that I needed to learn real faith. I needed to re- learn real love. I needed to learn the reality of grace and my dependence on God. And I think if I can, if you'll indulge me for one more second, Jason, there's an old, there's an old um, story that I remember being told in the church when I was growing up about um, a son earning up for a bicycle. And he goes and he earns and earns all summer long. And he goes to the store to, to make the purchase. And he comes up short and the father steps in. And says, I'll pay the rest for you. And it's used as sort of a metaphor of God saying, I'll step in and I'll take care of the rest. Well, it's it's nice, it's serviceable in some ways, but I think it's a little bit, I think it's a little bit um misleading. We can do all that work and all that, all that working towards what we think. And at the end of the day, it's not that like the bike was a hundred dollars and I ended up with eighty and then it got finished off by God. It's that I did all that work and I I show up and I still have no money that when he comes and he pays, he pays the whole thing. It's not that Christ is part of the bridge. He is the bridge. He's he's the entire bridge and our, our obedience and our covenants and our membership in the church. And these things are really just the reception of what's already there. That's already been paid for it. Uh, that, that perspective wasn't there for me before, and I, it's not that I I'm any less obedient or do, or doing anything like that. Now with this perspective, it's not that I don't believe that we want to continually work and obey and shape ourselves, being more like our Savior. But it's all really there. It's God has it really all there to us to give to us, and it's not it's not our works that are going to save us. It is ultimately, you know, they've they, they've talked about that that scripture. You know, it, it could just as well say we're, we're saved by grace after all we can do. It could just as well say in spite of all we can do.
1: Yeah, it's it's no surprise that the first principle of the gospel is faith in the Lord Jesus it's Christ. Because yeah. without that, it, everything else doesn't really matter. All the actions we do if we don't yeah. have that faith. Well, well, Daniel, you've gone through ups and downs in your life and, and we still have got more life to live. But when you look at success, we've talked about how the world measures it through money. But how is it that Daniel Harmon measures success in his life?
0: More and more it's in relationships. In, in my relationship in my marriage, my relationship with my kids, my relationship with my extended family, and then ultimately am I being a tool in Heavenly Father's hand for good in, in the world. And then ultimately my relationship with my Savior that's that's really what it's going to uh, going to boil down to the all, the all those other things are hopefully in service of those other ends and when they're not then I kind of have to recalibrate myself but yeah it's all it's all about the 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 relationships and are we are are we living with god on the daily are we are we praising him through thick and thin um are we turning to him in prayer, like we're commanded to all, all the time. Are we having the faith that we need to? And that is, that is, that, those are the things that ultimately lead to that love we need to have in our hearts. And that, that love is the healing power for all of those relationships.
1: That's Daniel Harmon, co-founder of the Harmon brothers and VidAngel, angel, and currently creator and executive producer of the Tuttle twins TV show. You can find the show on the angel studios app, which is free to download from your app store on any of your mobile devices. And one thing I want to share from this episode is the faith and perspective that Daniel shares is inspiring in regards to losing his daughter. And it's not like he's all of a sudden healed because of his faith or that he's no longer in grief or pain. There is still a lot of grief, there is still a lot of pain, and there is still a lot of anxiety that he struggles with. But through it all, there is hope and there is faith. And Daniel's faith is not based in temporal outcomes, but a hope in the eternal blessings that a loving Father in heaven promises. I hope you enjoy these stories as much as I do. Please leave me a review if you do. I'd love to hear your takeaways as well. Thank you so much for listening. Please check out our website, fortuneandfaithpodcast.com, and we'll see you next time. New episodes come out every second and fourth Monday of the month.